Hey, in today's episode, the oft, oft, off script life. Prince Philip's unerring capacity for awkward remarks, the convergence of psychology and spirituality, and the pitfalls of living a scripted life. I'm Moshe Schoenberg. This is the Chavrusa Podcast, an exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. Returning to the story of the white silk belt, or as they would say in Yiddish, the Weissegartel, Weissegartel, that the follower, the Apta Rav, had received as a gift and was all inspired by, this is the white, pure silk belt that my Rebbe used to wear. And then the neighbor, the Peshiska, the student of the Peshiska School of Thought, the quest for authenticity, the unending pursuit of absolute truth goes and not only mocks it, but smears black smudge all over it, sullying the whiteness of the sash. And this was one of the events that triggered the attempt to excommunicate Peshiska. And of course, leaving aside the unethical vandalization. Obviously, he was wrong for having vandalized something that wasn't his. Um, and that's not to be condoned. But the, the gist of the, the message, the messaging behind it, the symbolism of going ahead and doing that is really, it's really a challenge. It's a challenge to polite orthodoxies of the time. It's an inconvenient truth. And that's what Pashisco stood for. To say, yeah, this might be inconvenient and this might be a little offensive to your sensibilities because you are according great value, you're attaching great value to this Weissigartel, to this white belt. But there's nothing actually to it. I mean, if, if it's something intrinsic, if it's something real, if it's something authentic, then what do you care if, if there's black smudge on top of it? Or if it's not about the external appearance, if it's something intrinsic, so then it's fine. It doesn't matter how it looks on the outside. This, this pursuit of truth. I was reading a obituary for Prince Philip. And the title is Prince Philip is God just when America needs him most. And the article goes on, the the hespid, the eulogy for Prince Philip, is that he was a man who was completely unafraid to say the unsayable. He was ready to put himself out there and as the article goes, he had an unerring capacity to ask awkward questions, speak inconvenient truths, and challenge polite orthodoxies. The writer, Gerard Baker, I don't know who that is, he's the writer, uh, he argues that he wasn't, Prince Philip wasn't a clownish figure that was constantly just saying rude things about foreigners and socialists. He was very conscious, acutely conscious of his role as an iconoclast cheerfully smashing the revered verities of progressive modernity. He understood his role very well. And just reading that, I don't know enough of the details of Prince Philip's life to comment on particular details or episodes what he's referring to. But this this description, this description of somebody who's unafraid to say inconvenient truths, somebody who's cheerfully smashing the revered idols of his time, is the very 
notion and it conjures up images of what it means to be a Jew. Dating back from the very beginning of Abraham. Abraham smashing the idols. His father, Terach, was an idol wholesaler selling them to stores, to retail, to sell the, the idols. And one day walks home and into his shop and he sees that they're all completely smashed. And he, except for one that's holding the hammer that Abraham had smashed and put it into the hammer. And just on the face, what Abraham's doing is like poking a hole in this whole image. Like, well, that this chief idol smashed the other ones, but they don't have power. So if they don't have power, then what are you doing? Why are you selling them? Like that, that ability to poke a hole, even though of course it probably was very offensive to his father and had a, had an element of shock value. You see this, uh, this is a great story in 2019, the end of 2019, there was a, a exhibit, an art exhibit, a banana that was taped onto a wall. It sold for $120,000, which is a banana with a piece of uh, masking tape. And it was on display in the museum and somebody comes along and it's on video. Just Google, eat the banana art. And <laughs> peels off the tape, opens the banana, and consumes it. And, and the shock of the people of the time, the guy's name was David Datuna. David Datuna. And he's far from apologetic after eating the, the animal, even though people were uh, upset. And his response was, he said, it wasn't vandalism, it was art performance for me, and I am absolutely not sorry. And it's so, it's so, I think it's genius what, what he's doing. What he's saying is that this in itself is the art. This is the expression that I'm going for to show that what you consider art, what you're sitting around in here in a museum and looking at, the art in itself is to, to reveal the emptiness, to reveal the fact that it's just a banana. And that's really the, 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 the story of the white belt. Of putting on the the tar, the black tar, and the white belt is that unpeeling of the banana is challenging the politeness of the time, and it's pretty cool. Now the challenge becomes: how do you balance this with being a person of neimos, being a pleasant person, which is a very core Torah value? There are chel the ways of the Torah are pleasant. If something is not pleasant, then it's not a Torah value. That's an indicator. That in itself is the litmus test. If it's coming off as, as unpleasant. So how do you balance that? How do you balance this strive, this quest for authenticity and still maintain being a pleasant person? And I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a tough question. It's a tough balancing act. And I do know what, what isn't, what isn't pleasant is to go out and just for the sake of, of pushing people's buttons or just for the sake of being obtuse, um, is definitely, uh, not pleasant. That's not Torah. It's not, the point isn't to try to destroy somebody's argument just for the sake of destroying the argument. But when... When something, when a value is under attack, when the value is being swept away by a culture, 
and it's being demoted and being derailed and denigrated so then the ability to stand up and to and to respond in a way of saying like no that this is what 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 you're pushing is inauthentic and you don't have to come out and just accept everything because this person claims that this value is important uh prince philip's analogy was he said it's like fashion or or you don't want it to be like fashion right what well, what's fashion fashion is resistant to objective criticism you can't objectively critique somebody's fashion because they're saying, like, this is my fashion. Like, I like this. I like how this looks. So you could come and say, you don't like it. But that's that's your sense of fashion. Right? It's resistant to objective criticism. And ideas can't lead the same path. Ideas can't be like fashion. They need to be freely discussed and judged against the facts of real life. And if somebody tries to create ideas, notions, ways of thinking that are resistant to critique. They try to turn ideas into that category of fashion. That in itself, that in itself is untenable. And that is where that quest for authenticity comes in. It says, I'm not just going to take it just because this is what's commonly done. Continuing with the book by Rabbi Dr. Michael Rosen, The Quest for Authenticity, still in the introduction, he argues that Peshischa believed in a, a kind of psychology of spirituality. That psychology and spirituality were very intertwined. He quotes the Kutzka Rebbe, Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Kutzk, would proclaim that anyone that does a mitzvah when your ego is involved, it's like you're worshiping idols. There's no difference between somebody who worships idols and someone who worships himself. That was the Kutzker's incisive line. That's pretty sharp. Idol worship, of course, is one of the more severe missteps one can take in Judaism. So what does he mean? What's, what's the, the value that the Kutzker is trying to teach? And that is that a person has to engage in struggling in their ego. They have to discern and eliminate the motivations that are coming for your egotistic drives. That you're doing it not to do the right thing per se or not as a moral striving, as a character development, but you're doing it for honor or for the urge to conform. Because that in itself places a veil, places a separation between the human being and the creator. So you have to dig and uncover your real self, which is hidden in that darkness of the ego. So you got to first, before approaching it, instead of just jumping in, and of course this doesn't mean not to do it if you don't have the purest of motivations. I don't think... No, nobody would say that. Mishnah Perkei says, Mitoch Shalolishma, Balishma, from motivations that aren't pure, you end up coming to the ones that are pure. You've got to work at it, but you realize the whole time that you're aiming for something. Right? It means that recognition that I'm on a path here. 
about a path towards Lishma to doing it for um, for the, the the greater ideals that are involved. I heard a very similar idea from one of my rabbis in the, the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem, the largest yeshiva in the world. Rabbi Yosef Elephant, his name is. And he quoted from his rabbi, Abshleim of Volba, lived in Jerusalem as well. And he said the following, that a person, most people, most people go through their lives without ever exercising true free will. You don't actually utilize, in Hebrew, Bechira. You don't actually do free will. Why? He says, because take, for example, somebody that goes and buys an Esrik before Sukkot. Buying an Esrik, it's a mitzvah to shake the lulah of an Esrik. So you're going out to the marketplace to buy Esrik. And if you don't check your motivations as to why you're doing this, you're just doing it because everybody else is doing it, likely it is. You're probably doing it so that you should fit in. Imagine you come comes to Sukkot and you walk into synagogue and you don't have a lulav and Esrik, you're going to feel left out. You're going to feel less than by not having everybody else in the place has one you're not going to have one so your motivation even going in the first place is to fit in and then when you're buying the nicest one you're supposed to buy a nice astro looks nice nice shape nice color clean and people spend a lot of time investigating looking close they sell it uh unique customized uh, magnifying glasses to be able to see how pure of a etrog it is. Pre-Eitzimuhudah, the Torah says you should buy a beautiful etrog. So people invest a lot of time and effort into finding the exact one. If a person doesn't really ferret out what their motivations are, so maybe the, maybe you're doing it just so that the person sitting next to you, your neighbor, the person across the street is going to be like, wow, what a beautiful etrog you got. You must be somebody that's really into uh, mitzvahs. Maybe you're doing it for that. Maybe you're doing it for the the honor, the ego. Maybe you're doing it so people know, look how much this person spends on spirituality. There could be jealousy involved. You know that the person next to you always gets a good one. So there could be (laughs) many other machinations and drives that are driving you to that decision if you don't investigate if you don't know yourself if you're just going through because this is what you do and you go through routine without really stopping and checking and sourcing what it is so that it's ego one way or the other maybe you don't buy the answer because you don't find one that's good enough for you right and that's the the laziness kicking in basically revolva's arguing that our whole lives could just be a bunch of different desires, ego, which one is better for the ego right now? Maybe it makes sense to get up in the morning, not because I'm a motivated, ambitious person, because if I don't, people will talk bad about me or my mom will be upset. Or So the first step, the very first step into a life of authenticity is first discovering who you are, which which motivations, what's motivating you in all these different directions. And that's probably what the Kaskarava meant. That there's no difference between worshipping idols and worshipping yourself. There's an incredible story with one of the students, one of the followers of Peshiska. His name was Shmaya. 
Shmaya. And Shmaya was sort of an influencer within Peshista group. He had a lot of people that looked up to him. And he would give some talks. And he used to talk very often about this battle that a person has with their egotistic drives and their spiritual drives and how they come into conflict. And everything in life is really every decision we make. It's really a battle between our animalistic ego and our higher persona, our personalities, spiritual character trying to develop. In Hebrew, they would call this the Yetzir Hara versus the Yetzir Tov. And on his deathbed, he was very well advanced in his life and his followers are sitting around him. And somebody asks, he says, Shmaya, you always taught us about this constant conflict that a person's always facing challenges between the ego, between the soul. What about now? What about now? Do you have a Yitzhahara right now? Do you have a challenge right now? Like you're you're on the cusp of moving on to the next world? Like, well, well, what challenge could you possibly have? <laughs> Rishmaya looks at him. Um, he says, what a question. What a question. I have one of the strongest desires right now. You know what my Yitzhahara is telling me right now? You know what my ego is telling me? Whispering in my ear. Shmaya. Say Shema Yisrael in a loud voice and draw out, draw it out that everybody, that everybody will say after you die, ah, oh, you were at Shema's bedside when he died and he said such a Shema with such passion and with such heart and such emotion. Go out in style. That's what the Eitzhara is telling me. People will say you died like a tzaddik, you died like Rabbi Akiva. The story echoes very much the Gemara. The Talmud teaches that Rabbi Akiva was flayed to death by the vicious, sadistic Romans publicly with a hot iron combs for the sin, the great sin of teaching Torah. And Rabbi Akiva, as they got to his face and they're skinning his skin with hot iron combs, says, my whole life, my whole life, I was waiting to give over my whole essence to my Creator. You should love Hashem with all your heart, with all your soul. How do you love Hashem with all your soul? Yeah, you go about your day-to-day decisions and you do your best, but with all, with all, literally all, the only way to do that is through as what's happening now, Rabbi Kiva says, as I'm dying, and he says, Shema. The Ahaf is part of the Shema, and, and he dies. Shema says, that's what the Yitzhahar is whispering me. That's what my ego is telling me. Go out. Go out that in that same way. Dr. Rosen has such a insightful take on this story, and he points out, what's the problem? So what's the problem if you go out in this way? And people are inspired, and it's nice, and right, you're doing something great in your last moments the problem is is that every single death every single moment it's something unique and it's a private affair if Shmaya give gave in to those promptings of his ego and said Shema with the last voice with his last strength nobody would have been present at the death of at his death no one would have been present not neither Shmaya or the people gathered around they would all be acting out a script, a script that's already written, 
they will be giving a praise to a legend because you're supposed to give praise to a legend. Subconsciously already anticipating gathering around the deathbed because they know something spiritual, something holy is going to happen. And then they'll go and tell their friends that everybody from Shemaya to the last person to the people listening to the tale will all be acting out a script rather than just standing in the mystery of the moment in the passing of a dear friend and mentor. And that is the Yetzirah. That's the challenge in life. That's the ego trying to substitute the appearance for reality itself. The klipa for the pre, the, the peel for the actual fruit. Don't get stuck at the peel. Don't get stuck at the superficial, at the shell. And Shmaya understood this, and he also understood that for he himself, he can't play to somebody else, can't play to the, to the crowd. Now, at the most vulnerable moment of his life, as he's suspended between this world and the next, he realizes that if he would die, acting out a role to participate in how the community dies, quote-unquote, to go through the ritual of death, then he wouldn't have died. He would have already been dead. They would teach the following Midrash, the following Torah and Peshesha. In general, the teachings of Peshesha come from Rav Simcha Abonim, Rav Abonim, his student, the Kutzker, or successor, the Kutzker, and his predecessor, the Yehudi. This is the quote from the Yehudi. The Yehudi would give over this Medrash. Rav Shimon ben Gamliel lived in the times of the Tanayim, times of the Mishnah, about 2,000 years ago, 1900. Rav ben Gamliel said, Nobody honored their parents more than I. And yet, I found that Esav did. Esav, the brother of Yaakov. Esau. Because when I served my father, I would wear dirty clothes. And when I went outside, I would get rid of the dirty clothes and put back on my dress clothes. But Esav didn't behave like this. He would serve his father at all times in his best clothes. That's the Medrash. Ask the Yehudi. One second. If you know that that's the higher level to reach, to wear your fine clothes when you, whenever you're helping your father mow the lawn or cooking for him, whatever it is, so then just wear your fine clothes and get them dirty. Right? So what's, what's the, what's your, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from following in the way of Asaph? And Yudi answers, what does this mean to wear fine clothes? Clothes are a projection of an image. It's how we project ourselves, how we interface with the world. Esav, being around his father in his finest clothes, was a way of saying he projected his finest image, his most ideal image of himself to his father. And the Torah tells us how he would go and ask very complicated halachic questions, such as, do you have to take off meiser off of salt? Tithes halachically are taken off of all produce. Take 10% of your produce and donate it to either poor people or to public servants or depending on the year the Levites poor people. Fine. What about salt? Is salt technically produce? 
Is it a thing in itself or is it just a accessory that you wouldn't have to take off? And he comes, hey, he had the same question about hey. Right, so he's asking these questions to his father, like, look how deep I am into my pious behaviors that I'm not, I want to just make sure I'm covering my bases about my salt. That was Asaph's way of honoring his parent. Now, as a parent, imagine you were Isaac in this scenario. Ultimately, you wouldn't want to be deceived. To the contrary, you want you would have preferred to know your child's faults in order that you could help them. If you don't know that your child's struggling, if they put on this public veneer of everything's great, in the long term, that's not that's not great. In the in the short term, you'll be very tranquil, very proud. You'll have tons of nachas. Wow, look how wonderful my child is. Imagining living in this in this uh, perceived world of of imagination. And Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says, I can't be like Asaph. I can't be like Asaph. I can't honor my father that way. I can't hide my faults. On the contrary, I'm going to wear my dirty clothes. I'm showing up authentically. I'm showing up in all my rawness and all my flaws. I'm going to be there. My faults, my warts. I'm going to reveal that. And although... Maybe that causes my father pain in the moment. But ultimately he'll approve of it. Because down the road he'll be able to correct my character feelings and show me a better path. But for that moment I upset my father. And therefore I'm not... I don't honor my father like Aesop did. And this answer encapsulates the attitude of Peshischa towards, towards the world, towards our relationships. Our relationships, whether with other people, with ourselves, and with Hashem, with God. It's impossible without truthfulness, without vulnerability, and it's worth paying a painful price for that relationship. That painful price of being real, being raw, And we're not prepared in Peshischa to play that game. To play the game in the, of the technical sense of keeping up with the rules of the relationship and showing my best to my father that everything's great to, so that he should feel good in the moment. You're not prepared to play that game. And Dr. Rosen points out, if in Peshischa you're like Rav Shudim Ben Gamliel, you're willing to show up authentically, then who's the Asafs? Who's the Asa of the world? The inescapable conclusion is that Asa stands for any single person, whether an individual in private or a leader, whether a chassid, whether or not, whether Jewish, whether or not, who chooses to play to the crowd at the expense of your own inner integrity. If you're playing to the crowd and not being real with yourself, you're right. That's Asa. This sheds a lot of light into a different saying of the Kaskar. The Kaskar Rabbi would say that people depict Asaph. If you look in illustrations or children's books, so you, they, they put Jacob and Esau side by side because they were twins. And they, they were epically involved in struggle for their lifetimes and Kabbalistically, mystically speaking, throughout the generations. There's this constant 
struggles, really the blessings, when they were fighting over the blessings, switch the blessings, don't switch the blessings, steal the blessings. Like what's going on with the blessings? You look at the actual blessings, they're really prophecies in the future of this epic struggle and it portends yesterday, previous generations, today in the, in the moment, the Jewish people in the world, in contrast to the non, or the descendants of Esau, it's Esau and Yishmael, and then really in the Messianic age. Believing that aside, they they depict them in the in illustrations. It's Jacob's this pious man, long white beard, very regally decked out, and he's sort of this vulgar man of caveman type uh, picture. Kuska says, no, 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 you got this all wrong. Esau looked just the same as Jacob. He had the long bekisha, the long coat. He had the long white beard. All the followers they looked exactly the same from the outside. That, that that's Pesheska. And that's why you, that's why it was such a threat. We talked about it in yesterday's episode, like why were they trying to ban, excommunicate Pesheska? Because the establishment saw that Pesheska was raising the spiritual stakes way too high to return them to where they always were. Because it was really a full-fledged attack on their whole model of the system, of the leaders, of individuals, of going with the emotions. Ultimately, this is the message of Peshiska, that the authentic way, authentic Judaism, authentic service of Hashem, is through truth. And in order to be truthful with Hashem, you have to be truthful with yourself. As King David said, deep calls onto the deep. In order to do this, you have to be willing to discover who you truly are, to take off the lid, to put everything under scrutiny, catching any glimpses of ego, ulterior motives, anything that could be a barrier between you and Hashem. And that truth, redirected from describing Hashem as truth, the signature of Hashem is truth. In Peshesko, they understand that to redirect it to the individual, to yourself, that when you have a clarity of self-perception, then and only then could you have an authentic connection. When you purify yourself, like Rabbi Rabbonim says, if a person purifies themselves, they'll recognize Hashem from within the Torah. Because the assumption is, is that Hashem, Torah, and truth are all aligned. And you have the capacity, capability to make that connection between that, between all of them, provided that you're authentic. If you're authentic and you remove all those barriers, then you're tapped right in. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Harusa. If you enjoyed before, you even subscribe and rate it five stars and review and all that, and listen to the other episodes, please reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts, connections, ideas, questions, critiques. My number is 347 Podcast at gmail.com or across social media channels. Thank you. Have a wonderful day overflowing with happiness.